0: We are at 9.30, so if everyone wants to grab a seat, then we will get started here. I'm going to ask if we have a volunteer to open in prayer this morning. And if not, then I am going to volunteer. Who am I going to volunteer? I'm going to volunteer Steve Plett. All right, we are kind of back into regular schedule here. I had Marvin and Ruth Harder lined up to share their testimonies with us this morning. And continuing that, Marv called me about an hour ago and said they were not straying far from the bathroom this morning. So that will have to wait for next week, and we will pick that up. But we have not forgotten about that. So that means we will just go straight to our confession. So uh, turn to page 29. So we're on chapter 11 on justification and we finished off um, section 2 last time and so we are going to pick up section 3 here uh, today and while someone, uh, well I'll read it and then we'll, we'll work through it and somehow someone's going to have to talk for a while because there's ports with you and I need to eat those. Or Bolin, I guess. It was made by a Dutch lady, so I gather it's olibolen, not portzeltje. My mistake. Same recipe. When I was thinking, actually, this morning, one of the benefits of the Mennonites just always being on the run through Europe is we got all the best recipes. <laughs> <laughs> we got portzeltje from the Dutch. We got pierogies from the Ukrainians. Who knows what's well all Russian that we eat, so uh, it's good. All right. Page 29, Chapter 11, Section 3. By his obedience and death, Christ fully paid the debt of all those who are justified. He endured in their place the penalty they deserved. By this sacrifice of himself, in his bloodshed on the cross, he legitimately, really, and fully satisfied God's justice on their behalf. Yet their justification is based entirely on free grace because he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction were accepted in their place. These things were done freely, not because of anything in them, so that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God would be glorified in the justification of sinners. So that is a mouthful, and that is a glorious truth, and we will break it up into pieces here. So we'll Go up to footnote 8 and then look at the uh, cross references in scripture. So it starts off by saying, By his obedience and death, Christ fully paid the debt of all those who are justified. He endured in their place the penalty they deserved. And by the sacrifice of himself in his bloodshed on the cross, he legitimately, really, and fully satisfied God's justice on their behalf. And so then let's pick up those passages here. Who wants to take Hebrews 10, verse 14? Who's able to take that? Brooklyn. And then 1 Peter 1, 18. Jeremy. And then finally, Isaiah 53, 5, and 6. Evangeline. Okay, so let's start at Hebrews 10, 14. Go ahead, Brooklyn. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, and there's lots in a single verse there. But by reading this, and the whole book of Hebrews is entirely focused on the superiority of the new covenant system. It's, It's a whole book describing how the old types and shadows are fulfilled in this greater reality. And it's warning the Hebrew Christians don't go back there, okay, don't go back, uh, because they were tempted to go back to, uh, to this Jewish system of, uh, you know, temple sacrifices and circumcision and food laws, and th- this was enticing them all back, and the author of Hebrews, uh, his whole point in the whole book is saying, no, no, you have something better, why would you go back and put the training wheels back on when you've learned how to ride this bike successfully now? And so this happens in Christ. That's the single offering that's being referred to in verse 14. By a single offering, Jesus Christ, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so, again, for all time. Was anyone here alive when Christ was crucified? No. Does his atonement cover people in this room right now? Yes. Okay? For all time. Okay? And if you... Think of your own conversion, your own justification. Let's assume many of us have been Christians for quite a few years. Are your past sins forgiven? Mm -hmm. Are your current sins forgiven? What about the sins you're going to do tomorrow? Yeah, amen. Okay? What about the sins in 15 years from now? Are they forgiven? Yeah, they are forgiven. Okay? And this is a glorious truth. Uh, and this is why sometimes in this class and in personal conversations, the question of suicide has come up. Is that the unpardonable sin? And my answer to that is always no. Right? The thinking is, well, you don't have time to repent after a successful suicide attempt, um, so it can't be forgiven because you can't repent. But repentance is not about... Uh cataloging, and naming by name everything you've ever done in your whole life. I'm sure I've committed many, many sins that are long out of my memory. And if my forgiveness was conditioned on me remembering and listing by name every single one, I'm sure I'm not justified. But that's not how repentance works. Repentance isn't just over our sins. Repentance is over our sin. Okay? I don't need to repent just about stealing a Kit Kat when I was four. I need to repent for being Matt Plett. My problem isn't the Kit Kat. The problem is me. And so I need to repent over my sin, not just my sins. And so this is how Christ perfects for all time. It's not by cataloging every sin, but all sin, past, present, and future, has been forgiven by a single offering. Great. So my future sins are already forgiven, so let's go light it up. Right? Is that what you're thinking? Let's go have a blowout. Everything I'm going to do tomorrow is forgiven anyway. Let's go have a blowout. What does it say? He's perfected for all time those who are what? Being sanctified. sanctified. What is sanctification? Becoming more holy. holy. Yeah, your your actual behavior changing, right? Your real life behavior. And so one of the evidences that this atonement applies to you is that you are being sanctified. So if your attitude is sweet, my future sins are forgiven, so I better go start committing them. um, You're not being sanctified. That's not a sanctified attitude. Then this verse, you really have to question, does this apply to you? Are you in Christ if that's your attitude? And I would say not for long. Those who are in Christ cannot think that way for long. Those who are truly in Christ start to be sanctified but they're sanctified in a way that they don't carry the shame with them when they sin because even their future sins are already atoned for. Any further discussion on that? Does that make sense? Can we see that? Yes, I think so. Uh, Well, because God is providential, I think that is part of our sanctification. So part of our sanctification is repentance. So repentance of sins, confession of sin, is one of those things that is evidence that this work is happening in us. So I would see repentance itself as a fruit um, of this reality. So I would, yeah, for the sake of this, I'm using them interchangeably. Yeah, yeah. So repentance is a fruit of the spirit, or confession is a fruit of the spirit. It's evidence that this has, that this has gripped us. It would be the way I would understand it. So God's people will not forever persist uh, hard-heartedly in sin. Those who do that are not, they're showing evidence at least that they're not in Christ, right? Um, but can it look pretty bad before that moment? Uh, and I'd say, yes, I always go to King David right? The blood of Christ paid for his adultery and his murder both. So he did those things as a justified man, and yet his peace and his joy were completely stripped away from him, right? Because he, w- he, because he did belong to God, that's why he was miserable after he did these things, to bring him to repentance. I would say, yeah, in, in from God's standpoint, yes. Yeah, from the standpoint of his own assurance and his own joy, he needed to take that step. But had David died anywhere in that whole chain reaction of sin, he would have died as a justified man. Yeah. Be- and because he says after, in his repentance, I- in Psalm 51, it's, it's noteworthy. He's just torn apart after the prophet Nathan confronts him for his sin. And he goes down and he's, he writes Psalm 51. And it says there, restore to me the joy of my salvation he doesn't say restore to me the fact of my justification he was justified the whole way through but he was a miserable christian because he was sinning against god and because god loves david he wasn't going to let david enjoy life like that so being miserable can be a gift from god he (laughs) he was miserable lots (laughs) as a suffering servant of the living god yep Anything else on this? Does it feel a little bit scary or a little bit out of our control when we talk about grace that way? I'll admit, when I started learning this stuff, I was very uncomfortable with it. Because it kind of took, and rightly so, it kind of took grace out of my control. And that was a scary step for me. So I don't get to control my own salvation. And the Bible says, yeah, that's right. You don't get to control your salvation. But boy, that is a scary step. But our, our grasp of grace needs to be strong enough that if we are preaching the same gospel that the Apostle Paul preaches and people are understanding it properly, you should expect this objection. Well, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Okay. If you get that kind of pushback against your gospel, that's the biblical one. If you're preaching a gospel where no one would ever say, oh, so yeah, so you have to obey and then you and then you're saved, uh, you'll never get the objection that the Apostle Paul got. If you get the kind of objections that the Apostle Paul got, you're preaching the same kind of gospel that the Apostle Paul had. Okay? So uh, these charges, if they come against us, they shouldn't stick because we haven't answered. No sinning is not permitted. No sinning will make you miserable. And we even pray that unbelievers will be miserable. I pray that unbelievers or that Christians who are not being sanctified, I pray that their life would be terrible. I, I, I pray for that because that's the way out. <laughs> You've got to get to the end of your rope. Be miserable. Be unhappy. Be frustrated. Be angry. Okay, be hopeless because that's the path forward. That's the gate to hope in Christ. But nevertheless, grace is out of our control. First Peter one eighteen and nineteen. Who had that? Okay. So we were ransiled, ra- ransomed from the futile ways inherited by our fathers. Okay. And so again, Peter is looking at the greater reality in Christ. We have these types and shadows of forgiveness and of sacrifice and uh, of repentance in the old system. And here he's calling them futile ways. So we're not going to buy our way out of uh, sin with perishable things such as silver or gold. But Christ is far more valuable. He's the perfect lamb. going to go on to verse 20 but I'll save that for another discussion so I'll just leave that there discussion on that see this is another way of saying the same thing Christ is greater Christ is bigger Christ is the end uh, of the old system and then Isaiah 53 5 and 6 so is substitutionary atonement, is that the evangelical and Protestant invention of a bunch of bloodthirsty butcher shop Christians in the 19th century? Or did Isaiah, in fact, himself see substitutionary atonement? Okay, substitution is there from the beginning. Blood must be spilt for sin. God is too holy to countenance sin. Blood has to be shed. There must be death. And because God is patient, he allows animals as a substitute at first. And in fact, I'd even say we see a glimpse of that. When our parents get kicked out of the garden, they get covered with skins. Well, what is that other than a picture of the gospel? Okay, the skin, the covering of someone else is going to cover them and protect them and shield them as they go out into a cursed world that's a picture of us being robed in the righteousness of Christ so even in the midst of a curse our first parents are given uh, little breadcrumbs of the substitute who is to come and I know substitutionary atonement has come under scrutiny or it's come under attack especially by more progressive and liberal Christians uh, but we absolutely cannot budge on the importance of substitutionary atonement. If Christ did not shed his blood for sinners in our place, there is just simply no gospel possible. It's not, uh, I think R.C. Sproul said one time he went to a liberal seminary and was actually ordained in a a liberal denomination. uh, And towards the end of his seminary program, he taught a sermon, I believe, on this text about the blood atonement. And he said one of the professors yelled up from the back that what he was preaching, this blood atonement, that that is primitive and vulgar. And I think he thought on his feet for a minute and he said, yes, you're right. It's primitive and vulgar. And it's exactly what the word of God says. Sin is vulgar. Sin is primitive. What else do you expect? Blood has to be shed. Life has to be lost over sin. It must. We have no other way forward other than a substitute dies on our behalf. And that's what all the bulls and goats and, and pigeons and everything else in the Old Covenant was about. Daddy, why are we killing this little lamb? Right, you can just imagine the little Hebrew girls, two, three years old, and they've got this little lamb that they're used to playing with, and it's cute, and it's clean, and it's fuzzy. And then that time of year comes and dad slits its throat. Surely that led to some conversations in the home. Surely it did. And if these fathers had the wisdom of the Old Testament, they would have explained how sin kills. Kay? God demands death for sin. You can't sin and not have death come out of it. And Isaiah sees that even before Christ comes. And I'll stop there, mostly so I can eat a porcelain but also to involve conversation. Anything else on that? Take your time. (laughs) All right. You forced my hand. Go back to 1 Peter that we read. I was going to pick it up there. And then I decided not to, and now I decided we will. Yep. Okay, so let's go back to 1 Peter 1. Okay, so what we had just read that this is but verse 19, I'll pick it up there. But with the precious blood of Christ, that the lamb, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay, so here we're confronted with this word foreknown and we've discussed this lots in previous sections about God's decree and God's covenants and so forth and his providence. Um, Many Christians hear the word foreknown and they assume, okay, this is an assumption, they assume, oh, God looked down the tunnel of time and he saw what would happen. Okay, he watched the movie of history before the rest of us did. So he comes running out of the theater all excited about what he just saw and then he tells his prophets what he saw was going to happen. So God has the power of insight but he does not have the power of providence in that scenario. For known in the Bible, Vern, the word know. In the Bible, if a husband knows his wife, what's going to happen nine months later? Yeah. <laughs> Can't... Can, can? Known, one, he knows her in a way that's not just cognitive knowledge, right? He may know of many women, but he only knows his wife. His love is set on her, right? So there's this intimate knowledge or love that's there when people, it says in Amos um, that of all the nations of the earth, God only knows Israel. Well, clearly he's aware of all the others. He has cognitive knowledge of them, but he only loves Israel. Foreknown equals foreloved. So when we read about foreknowledge in the Bible, it's not God learning history by seeing it first. He does not know history as a consumer of history. God knows history as the author of history. The basis of his foreknowledge is not that he saw it before the rest of us did. The basis of his foreknowledge is he wrote the story. So, of course, it's going to go exactly according to script, okay? And this is what makes predictive prophecy possible. So, foreknown here in the way that many evangelicals wrongly understand it, that God just saw this beforehand, and he just knows it, would essentially say, you know what? That worked out so cool. The way this trial just got batted back and forth, and then Pilate kind of washed his hands of it, and they nailed Jesus to the Oh, man, did this ever turn out great right I can retroactively put the sins of the world on Jesus now because all these players just by chance right through human decisionism did the right things and now I can do something with this no 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 he was foreknown he was foreloved before the foundation of the world God wrote the story and everyone did From their perspective freely, everyone's choosing what they're doing, and yet in the bigger picture, doing exactly, (laughs) exactly, exactly, precisely, without a single exception, what was authored in the story. So Isaiah can talk about it in the past tense. In Revelation, uh, it talks about the book of life that was there from before the foundation of the world. So before there was a world, before there was a fall, before there was Adam and Eve, before Christ came to earth, God already had his book. <laughs> These are the ones coming to heaven with me. Okay, And he didn't learn that knowledge. He created that knowledge. That's his sovereign decree. Um, so God's not learning things. Even if we say, well, God learned it before history started, you still have a point in time at which God learns something. So if you step 30 seconds before God knew something, that means he's not omniscient in that moment, okay? It can't be other than this. It can't, there's, well we've discussed that lots, but there's many philosophical and more importantly, theological issues with that view of passive foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge is active. He knows the story as the author, not as a consumer, not as a reader, and so it's entirely fitting for the biblical authors, like Isaiah, who's writing before this happens, to speak of it in the past tense. Because in the decree of God, this is settled. And so I would even say, we can rightly say, in regards to your own conversion. Maybe you don't know. Do you know when you were converted? So <laughs> okay, so. Okay. Okay. Okay, so that's a a fair answer. When I was seven or eight, I was converted, right? I was saved. Um, Is there also a sense in which you can say that you personally were saved when Christ was crucified? 2,000 years ago? I I think there is a sense in which we can say that. And if God's book of life was there before the foundation of the world, can you also say you've been saved from eternity past? There is a sense in which you can say that, right? So it's not just a one-size-fits-all answer. I was saved... Before the creation of the world, I was saved 2,000 years ago when Christ died for me, and I was saved when I was about four, when my actual conversion in time happened. Those are all true answers, just looking at it from a different, from a different angle. So I don't think there's anything funny about the Old Testament prophets speaking in the past tense about things that are going to happen. Anything more on that? Yep, no, and that's, yeah, that's another way of, of saying the same thing. In the decree of God, these things are eternal, but they happen in time, in history, uh, that are significant. You have your hand up? No? Okay. Anything else on this before we move on? Okay. It is important to understand the nature of foreknowledge and the fact that it is active and not passive. God cannot learn a thing. And just think for a minute, in the silence of your seat, all the problems that happen with God learning something. You set yourself up for something radically different than what the Bible describes. God can learn nothing. Let's keep going. Yet their justification is based entirely on free grace because he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction are accepted in their place. These things were done freely, not because of anything in them. And then that brings us up to footnote 9 here. Uh, Romans 8.32, who wants to take that? Lisa? Kaylin, do you want to take 2 Corinthians 5.21 then? Okay. Go ahead, Romans 8.32. Okay. There, now I finally caught up. Okay. Gave them up for us all. Okay. So, all who are going to believe, Jew and Gentile, past, present, future, uh, and I even think that Christ's atonement applies retroactively to the Old Testament saints. Okay. They're drawing on a line of credit that Jesus fills up. uh, So, they're saved on future looking faith we are saved on backwards looking faith because we're on different sides of the atonement um, but in either case Christ dies one time for all who are his uh, and then Kaylin, 2 uh, Corinthians 5 21 all right Okay, has just read my very favorite Bible verse. If I could only take one Bible verse to the grave with me, that would be it. Because the whole gospel is summed up gloriously in one sentence. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so this double exchange is clearly in view here. So he made him to be sin. So Christ, who knows no sin becomes sin. He becomes a curse. He becomes uh, dirty to God that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our sin unto Christ, his righteousness unto us. The great exchange happens there and that is glorious. And we, I, we've discussed this before too. My conception always as a kid I had a very clear conception That my sins went, Jesus died for my sins. That was very clear. That much I knew. Jesus died for my sins. So my sins get transferred onto Christ. What I had no concept of until I was well into my 20s was that Christ's righteousness gets put on me. I had no idea about that. And this verse clearly teaches it. And that is almost as exciting a truth, maybe more exciting truth, than the fact that my sin went onto Jesus. Is that his righteousness comes onto me. If all that happened at the cross was that your sin got put on Christ and so your debt is cancelled, that is wonderful in itself. But where does that leave you? Morally neutral. Does God have room for moral neutrality in heaven? And he does not. God has room for perfect, unblemished righteousness in heaven. And that's what you get when you come to Christ. You get covered in the perfection of Christ. You are completely judicially Holy, you are righteous, you are without blemish. All the sin, all the shame is gone, and all the benefits of Christ are put on you. You're adopted into the family, and adoption is real. If a family adopts a child that's actually their child, and they actually have a share in the inheritance. Okay? It's actual, it's real. So we're adopted into God's family. So everything that belongs to Christ by adoption belongs to us. And that truth is took me much later in life to see. And I'm curious if that would be consistent with the room as a whole. I think I've asked that before. But for whom was that second idea a later development, that we get covered in righteousness? Kay. And for whom was it clear that your sins went on to Jesus? Kay. So that, I, think that, I think all Christians correctly understand that. But that second part is not always as clearly expounded. More discussion on that. Yep. So Rob just said, understanding that second part helps with assurance. Right? Yep. That's right. Because you might screw that up and you just add to the things that need to be forgiven, right? But if you're actually righteous, God cannot, will not turn his back on you, right? Yeah, I agree. And I think it also, it helps us with our assurance and closely tied to that. I think it also helps us with our sanctification, Because now I'm not fighting dirty and clawing my way out of a hole trying to get righteous. I am righteous and sanctification is essentially saying, okay, Harder. You are righteous, now become what you are, right? That's sanctification. You already are this, now start acting like it, right? You're adopted into the family, uh, so now start acting like you're one of the family members, right? If we'd adopt a child into our family, they, whatever their background, even if they look completely different than us, uh, they'd sit at our table and it'd say, okay, now you're a plet. Here's how we do things in our house, right? Uh, but you already are. You're not fighting for acceptance, Right? You are working out of an abundance of acceptance. And that looks very different. People who fight out of love and acceptance fight sin very differently than people who are always hoping that they'll get it. They're fighting desperate and they're fighting without joy. And they're fighting without energy eventually. You're just fighting negatively. Do you know any of those? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the visiting pastor from Kansas says there's literally miserable Christians in the U.S. Man, wow, that would be something. Imagine if we'd find them here, okay? <laughs> Christians have no need to be miserable. We are forgiven, we are adopted, we are righteous. And so we fight out of joy, we fight out of abundance, okay? And I've said this many times, uh, and I'll say it some more because I want to make sure we get it. Even the significance of the Sabbath being on the first day instead of on the last day pictures that. God fills us on the first day and says, now go out. What did the Israelites have to do? Work, 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 work. Finally, you work for your rest. Now God says, no, no, no. Come in. I'm going to fill you up first. And now you fight out of abundance, not for it. Okay? A first-day Sabbath is in completely keeping. A first-day resurrection... uh, it's completely keeping with a new creation mandate that we have on this side of the cross. We, this is a new creation, okay? A first-day Sabbath mi- mirroring a first-day resurrection is entirely consistent with the fact that Christ is a new head of a new humanity, okay? And we, we work out of rest. We're not fighting for it. We're working out of it, and that is the same with our justification and our sanctification. We fight sin out of holiness, not for our holiness. And we're rounding third and we've got seven minutes, so let's see if we can make it. So that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God would be glorified in the justification of sinners. And who wants to take Romans three twenty six, Caleb. And who wants to take... Ephesians one, six and seven. Val, and then who wants to take Ephesians two verse seven? Keith. Okay, so go ahead. Romans three twenty-six. Okay, thank you, Caleb. He shows his righteousness at the present time so he might be the just and the justifier. The first time that that verse started to click and I feel like it's just, do you ever have that experience where you feel something's clicked but then still it feels like you're just on the verge of it clicking? (laughs) Like I can almost see it, the window's almost open, I almost understand what this verse means and I feel like it's done that and I feel like I'm just on the verge of understanding what this verse means. But whatever I don't understand yet, think of the fact that God is the just and the justifier. Okay? One, this is Trinitarian, because a holy God, a holy creator father demands perfection to be in his presence. He demands it. Okay? So he is the just, Here's his holy law, and it is not going anywhere. And anything other than absolute conformity to that holy law equals damnation. He's the just. And God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, goes to do that on behalf of a new humanity. And God credits that to this new humanity, to all those who are in Christ. And so, God, in that action, is the justifier. Christ on the cross has two natures, divine and human. Touching his divinity, he is the holy God who requires payment. Okay? And so only God can satisfy the righteous demands of God. Jesus must be divine. And only a man can represent the people in this room. He's the justifier. He's the God-man. And so Christ's two natures and Trinitarian thinking are absolutely intertwined into this. God himself... Jesus Christ, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, is just. He's the one demanding perfection, and he's the one supplying perfection. Okay? That is a glorious truth. He is the just and the justifier. And there's no other way to do that other than with the triune God and a man who is truly God and truly man. And I hope I'm saying that in a way that makes sense because this is one of those things I just feel like for the last 10 years I've been just on the cusp of seeing something. Or do you ever have that experience where God kind of opens the window for a little bit and you see it and then you t- <laughs> and you're and you just trying to fight to get back in there? I want to see it again. I want to see it again. I want to see it again. And it's just a fight, but that's how I feel. This is one of the most glorious f- verses in the Bible and it would be wonderful to catch on to it. Lisa. Did everyone hear Lisa quoting the great Prince of Preachers? God saves from Himself, for Himself, and by Himself. Okay? What are you ultimately saved from? What are you ultimately saved from? And and a lot of Christians will say sin, and that's kind of right. But you know what? Your sin. I I've enjoyed lots of my sin. And it's in the past. Why do I need to be saved from that? It was fun nothing bad happened okay well no well you need to be saved from the consequences of sin okay getting closer well there are no consequences nobody even knows what I did there's no consequences why do I need to be saved from that because I need to be saved from the one who is going to eternally damn unjustified sinners God saves sinners from himself and that is a bit of a jarring truth at first, but it's absolutely true. What is the, we've discussed that here too, what is the absolute worst part of the lake of fire? Is the, not that it's the absence of God. This is not a Christless eternity. The worst part of the lake of fire, when you read about it in Revelation, is that you cannot escape God, okay? The smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever in the presence of the angels and of the Lamb. That's the worst part of hell is that God in his holy son is staring down on you nonstop and you cannot escape it and you're there gnawing on your tongue wishing for rocks to crush your head. Make it stop and after a thousand years of that you are not one second closer to being done. That is the torment of hell is you cannot escape the lamb. He is there standing in judgment over condemned sinners for eternity. Don't ever talk about hell as though it's a Christless eternity or it's just this vacuum of nothing. It is non-stop judgment and torment every second of every day with no end in sight ever. God saves us from himself. And he does it by himself and for himself. He is the just and the justifier. He, He sets the terms of forgiveness for those who come to know his son so he does this uh, from himself by himself and for himself ultimately so that he can be glorified in bringing this whole mass of humanity into the new creation with him and so what Lisa said quoting Spurgeon is absolutely profound God does save by himself for himself and from himself Then Ephesians 1, verse 6 and 7. Who had that? Amen. And so what Val just read, it's clear that this all happens in Christ. In Christ. And so this is, again, this covenantal or, or adoption language however you want to speak of it but it's in Christ it's as we are grafted into Christ as we are adopted into the family as we become Jesus's little brothers and little sisters all these things are true of us okay sometimes it's it's been pictured as though Christ is this uh, this this crowned prince who uh, if you would just show up in some monarch's throne room uninvited you'd get thrown out pretty quickly You've got no permission to be there. But if the king's son brings you in and says, Dad, I would like you to meet my friend. And by the way, I've also made him my little brother. Well, the king's going to look on that arrangement very differently than if you just come walking in. Right? That is the gospel. We are in Christ. He ushers us in and we, he gives us permission to be in front of the father because he has made us his little brothers and his little sisters. It's in Christ. That's what all that language in Christ. This is covenantal. This is personal. This is adoption kind of language. And I think it was maybe just before Christmas we talked about. If we talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And we talk about these concepts in a non-covenantal way. Where we just make it robotic and impersonal. Like these are just gears on a machine grinding away. Cold and impersonal then the theology of the Reformation does look very repulsive. I will be the first to admit that. If this is just cold, impersonal, fatalistic gears grinding away, but the Bible never ever presents it that way. It's personal, it's covenantal, it's adoption, it's family language, it's fatherly providence, okay? This is not divorced from a personal God. This is very much the actions of a fatherly God. And then finally, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 7. Who had that? Keith. Do that. So Keith, when you decided to raise yourself to death, you gave Jesus permission to do this, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, what did he do? Who raised you up, Keith? Yeah. How much were you helping him? Yeah. And by not a whole lot, if you had to put a percentage on it, it would be. (laughs) Yeah. Probably zero. I think it was Paul Washer who said, If salvation was 99.9% up to God, but that last 0.1% was up to you, everyone would be damned. Everyone would be damned. Okay? God doesn't offer to raise you up. He's not throwing a life preserver at people who want to be saved. He is resuscitating people who have drowned and hate Him from the pit of their heart. And He raises them to life and then He fishes them out. It's a different picture. God. There is nothing in dead sinners that wants Christ at all that must itself be part of the gift. He raises dead sinners to life and adopts us and gives us all the inheritance of Christ Jesus. And so these truths are absolutely glorious. And I really hope as we work through this slowly but surely, I hope we can see both the sovereignty of God in salvation and also how this is personal and covenantal and not just cold, hard kind of Greek fatalism. You know, this isn't Oedipus. This is fatherly providence from a loving fatherly God who is governing things for his glory and for our ultimate good. Why don't we close in prayer and then we can have some coffee and fellowship time. Lord, we want to thank you and stand in awe and humility of the fact that we did not save ourselves. We didn't even save ourselves with your help. Lord, we did not grab the life preserver. We were dead. We hated you. We couldn't see past the sin that we love, and yet which was slowly but surely killing us. Lord, and I thank you for each one here that you have uh, either saved before they fully participated in that sin, and for those who have been mid made miserable by their sin and you have used that to open their eyes to give sight to the blind to give hearing to the deaf lord and to usher us into your glorious kingdom lord if there's any here this morning that don't have the joy of knowing you in a saving way lord again we ask that you would make their life unenjoyable lord please have the kindness to remove all taste buds for any kind of enjoyment whatsoever until they know you in a saving way and they would see what they were really meant uh, for. That we would have a true taste for real joy, for lasting joy, for deep joy, and not the trivial little things that will pass away. Lord, I pray that you would impress it deeply in our hearts what it means that we are a new creation in you, that we are alive in Christ, that you have not freed us just from the debt of sin, but also from the shame of sin and also uh, from sinful desires, that we can walk in newness of life, that we can fight happily as we put sin to death in our lives, to be sanctified, to grow up in holiness, and that when people would see us, they would see your marvelous and your gracious work in and through us, in our words and then also in the fact that we live our lives in accordance with those words. This isn't just externalism, Lord, but you have captured our hearts. Lord, we want to give you all the praise. We want to thank you again as we just come through Christmas that you found a way to send the God-man to earth, that you found a way in your supreme wisdom to be both the just and the justifier. Lord, give us a fresh uh, sense of what that means and how glorious that truth is. Lord, you are the just and the justifier. And I pray that we would bless you and praise you for that and that our lives would be lives of joy, lives of contagious joy and happiness in knowing you. Lord, help us as we uh, face a new year. I pray that uh, if this is an opportunity to put old habits to death or to create new ones. I pray that you would do that in and through us as well, that you would be praised and we would be filled. pray also that you'd be with us this morning. As we move to corporate worship, prepare our hearts and minds. I pray that we'd be receptive to be not just hearers, but also doers of your word. Lord, And we thank you for all your kindness to us. And We pray this all in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ and amen.